Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with artist David Best and host Steve Heilig as they discuss the Burning Man temples. A note to our listeners, please be aware that this program contains strong language and mature subject matter. First, let me welcome everybody to Commonweal. Uh, this is a health and environmental and other good work institute that's been here now 40 years. And uh, for the last 10 years, we've actually been doing, through the New School, talks on all kinds of great things. All or most of our talks are podcasted on the website. You can go to commonweal.org and the New School, there's a page there and it has all kinds of things on there. Um, couple listed of interest that we did recently. Don Latin wrote about, I mean, spoke about psychedelic sacraments and the new psychotherapy. Michael Pollan, the trip treatment, new research on the healing properties of psychedelics. Now, why did they pick these ones that are all about psychedelics when you're here? I don't know. And Peter Coyote, the Rainman's Third Cure, uh, which is a really fascinating one. Uh, this event we've been thinking about for a long time, and it really comes together nicely, at least for me, because not only David Best, who all of you know who he is, I believe. One of the pieces I looked at at the uh, online, reading about him, called him both an icon and a legend. So that's kind of scary, right? Sounds like but, an automobile. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, another David, a dear old, one of my oldest friends from high school is here, David Washer, who is not only a contractor here in Marin, who builds beautiful fountains and all kinds of things, but has been a longtime member of the temple crew, building uh, the temples with David Best and uh, kind of an unofficial photographer and videographer of the temple. So we're going to be seeing some of his work as we talk today. So it just fits together nicely. Yeah. So. so, David, thank you very much for making the trip out here today. I know with traffic nowadays, that can be a I guess fast. everybody that comes out here always says there's no signs to get here, right? Yeah. Right. So, you know, yeah. so, so that was one thing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I promised... I have three things that I'm not going to say or do, so I'm not going to do those. But I have a friend here that I asked about his girlfriends, and uh, he got a little embarrassed. So I thought I'd just rub it in a little more. You're basically so, saying you don't want me to ask you about your girlfriends. I, I'm asking him about his girlfriend. Oh, no, okay. <laughs> and that's one. What you, you thought I'd lie, huh? Uh, uh, the other two? You no, no, that wasn't okay, one of it. them. Okay. The, no, the one I'm not going to tell, I won't tell. Yeah. And then the joke I told at a vegan meeting, right? And uh, I hope I'm not going to get in a lot of trouble here, but I'm I don't think vegans have today, a think, real right. tremendous sense of humor. <laughs> so they didn't like the joke. And then what was the other one? What the hell was the other one that I'm not going to do? I'm not going to tell it anyway, so... There, so those three things I'm not going to do. Okay, so um, one of common. But I have, I have lied before. <laughs> one of Commonweal's uh, great persons is a woman named Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen, who is a writer and thinker and teacher in medicine, and she believes that uh, after teaching young students for decades and decades that. Most people in their early years, before they're, say, 10 years old, have some sort of signature event that sets them on their course of what they want to do in life. Do you think of anything, what was the, when, when did you first realize you wanted to be an artist? Nice question, that's perfect. Uh, 
I'm not being facetious when I say that. Uh, I was six years old when my mother married my second father. And uh, he was an artist. And when I saw him, I wanted to be an artist. So I was six years old when I decided that I wanted to be an artist. So it was from that point on, I never, I never fluctuated from that, that vision. What kind of art did he do? God, what did I do? No, what did he do? Your, oh, he your was second... a cartoonist. Oh. So he did a lot of cartoons, a lot of uh, kind of, I don't know if any of you are familiar with S. Clay Wilson. You know, he did kind of seedy barroom cartoons. <laughs> I mean, he had like, he would, he hung out at a lot of different bars, so he would take me to these bars and they'd have like, one bar had 40 of his cartoons up. You know, so he never had to pay for a drink. He just did a cartoon. Uh, but he was—he taught me how to draw. Taught my brother and I both how to draw, and uh, that was—that was the—that was, the, was the, when I decided I'd be an artist. Yeah. Is when I was six years old. And did he take you to the art institute that first time? Yeah, but he took me. My father went to the art institute, and then he took me to the art institute when I was six or seven, and I saw. Uh, I met Flo Allen. I don't know if any of you know who she is. She was a very famous model at the Art Institute. And years later, when I went back as a kid, when I was 16 or 17, I brought some drawings home, and my father said, that's Flo. And he had drawn her, and I drew her. And I said to Flo, Flo, you're the first naked woman I ever saw besides my mother. And she said, honey, you never saw me naked. I was nude. <laughs> and I... It was a real different thing. So what was the first kind of art you were doing at the, then? The, oh, God. At six really years the old. First, this is really, really nice because I was, arrived here and was sitting in my truck kind of taking naps. And some of these things that you're asking me kind of kept circling through my head. Um, especially for those, there's not a lot of young struggling or seeking, it doesn't matter how, how old you are, trying to become an artist, you know. Uh, I had done some drawings. I always did calligraphy, where I'd make up fake languages. I'm, I was a bad student and not a very good scholar, but I could create my own languages, you know. And I did drawing, long drawings with just characters on it. And I also did some Marlboro cigarettes, came out with a flip-top box, right? And uh, you could make, you could put legs on the box and put things, and then it, it would open up, you know, like a puppet, right? You know, probably some of you did that when you were kids. You know? So I did those, but the, but the, choreogra the, the calligraphy thing, uh, the Chronicle had a, a section in the Sunday paper where they'd have artists of the week, and you'd get a certificate if they put your thing in it. And my friend, friend of my father's put my calligraphy in it. And so that was the first stuff I did. And then I glued stuff on, uh, I got little beads and got the skunk skull and painted it white with shoe polish and mm -hmm. stuck stuff on it, you know. It was kind of like, I think I was probably nine years, eight years old when I did that. You know? And you returned to the Art Institute eventually to study formally? Yeah, I went to the Art Institute when I was 16. 16, 17, and I was there, I think 18, 19, then I got drafted and uh, 
came back out of the army and then went there, got my master's there. So I'd gone there, I don't know how many times, a number of times. Yeah. Parenthetically, I heard that you had a pal there, or at least knew a guy named Jerry Garcia there. So he's a guitar player, right? That's a guitar player. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Garcia. And I lived on a peninsula, and uh, Garcia lived in Palo Alto, and uh, Dave Nelson, who's the new writers of the Purple Sage, and Peter Albin was the bass player for Big Brother. They're all, you know, we're just kind of, and Mickey Hart's dad had a drum store, or a music store in San Carlos. Uh, but Garcia, we, both Garcia and I got scholarships to go to the Art Institute, so we'd write the train up together. Hmm. And he mostly, you know, he, he would sit in the courtyard playing guitar with the, and all these, he had it down, you know, he was already playing guitar. So he, he was, spent most of his time in the courtyard playing guitar. <laughs> but yeah. And after formal schooling, uh, how did you pursue art as a full-time vocation to start? Uh, well, with what happened, this is probably the most information anybody's ever going to get out of me. <laughs> this is painful stuff, but it's all right. Uh, when I got out of the Army, I ended up in a short period of time in a religious, fundamentalist kind of trip. And the born again people didn't know what the hell to do with me, right? Because I was, I, I, I didn't really, I got converted because I had, I was, doesn't matter why. Uh, but they were trying to figure out what the hell to do with me. So they ended up, said, well, why don't you go teach art in Marin City? So uh, I went to Marin City, and someone said, well, if you like it so much, why don't you live here with us? So they kind of called my bluff. I mean, don't call my bluff, because I do stupid things. So I went and moved to Marin City, and was trying to teach young black kids not to say motherfucker. So I mean, I kind of missed the point. You know, I was a, a white guy trying to teach some kind of weird morality to these kids. And, um, but I had worked there for, I'd lived there for two years, and. I was in Sausalito, and I was in, uh, at the Tides one night. And uh, there was an artist named Art Grant who, so Art Grant saw me and said, what the hell, what are you doing? And I was at the Tides looking at books. I said, well, I'm teaching kids how to do art in Marin City and preaching the gospel. Ooh, 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 that's it. I mean, this is confession time, right? <laughs> Fuck. I've never done that publicly, and I swear to you. Uh, We're going to absolve you after this is over. <laughs> so Art Grant said, you should, be, you should be an artist. You're supposed to be an artist. You're not supposed to be doing this bullshit. And he took me to his studio, and you know, I don't know if any of you know who Art Grant was, but he had... 7,000 paintings and 15,000 pieces of sculpture. I mean, he's a fanatic. And so a week later, I'm at the Tides, and this gentleman, I mean, Art Grant was not a gentleman, <laughs> but this other man is a gentleman in a suit. His name was Serge Turbach, and he had studied, he'd worked in New York City under the WPA with Jackson Pollock, and he was a painter. And he looked at me and said, 
the hell are you doing? You're supposed to be an artist. Mm -hmm. So being that I was into that religious bullshit, I looked at signs, okay, it's a sign, I'm supposed to be an artist. I'm supposed to be an artist. I want to get out of that religious thing anyway. Now, my mother, who didn't tell many jokes, said that the most religious period of her life, she prayed to God every day that I wouldn't call her. <laughs> that was a good one, you know? Uh, so I went back to school. That's when I went back to the Art Institute. I went back to school. I went to the College of Rennes. And then from the College of Rennes, went to the Art Institute. I got a master's in sculpture. Although the Art Institute's paperwork is all screwed up. So sometimes they've got me listed as having a master's degree in painting or ceramic sculpture or sculpture. And maybe even library studies, you know. <laughs> so I don't know. But... I went there and then uh, just did art, you know, made stuff. I did a lot of ceramics. I did a lot of junk sculpture, you know, kind of influenced by art, by Art Grant. You know, uh, there was a group of us, Mickey McGowan, Larry Fuente, and uh, Dickens Bascom had the unknown museum in Mill Valley. So we used to do a lot of glued stuff. You know, I glued junk on, on things. So I did a lot of cars and stuff Yeah, so like that's that. what I was going to say. You kind of became known, at least as far as I'm aware, first for gluing a lot of junk on cars. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so you did a lot. Yeah. I mean, you know... Art cars. Yeah. The, it's a real important... Uh, you want to make sure that if you're looking for material at the dump that you don't come in and say, I'm looking for some assemblage material <laughs> or found object material. You're looking for junk. You know, assemblage material is much more expensive than junk. Okay? So, you know, I mean, you really have to know the nomenclature, right? Uh, yeah, I did cars. Were these, did, when you were doing these, were, you, were these exhibited in places? Or were you just doing them and driving no, them No, you know, I kind of... <laughs> The cars, I've done like, I think, 38 cars. And I'm, uh, I'm a California kid, so I grew up with automobiles and car culture. You know? uh, my father was an automotive cartoonist, so he drew a lot of cars. Uh, but the cars, I never, I, it was always separate from my art. Mm -hmm. I, I kind of always saw the cars as not being necessarily well, they, they weren't high art to me. They were just stuff I liked, liked to do. And the, there was a movement in the art car community to take it seriously and start to document it and try to sell royalties, you know, for commercials and bullshit like that. And I wasn't, that was not what I... A decorated car is like a public art thing. It's not for sale, you know? That's the magic thing about them is that there's not, you park it on the street and it belongs to everybody, you know? And that kind, of, that kind of mentality filtered into my work. I mean, I, I was in the marketplace, you know? If any of you have been involved in the market, in the art world, you know that at a certain point, if you're doing something that's really that they're selling, they want you to make some more of them, you know? Or, or, you know, when your work becomes so expensive that you can't afford to own it, there's something wrong, you know? And, 
And I always said to my dealers, and I still say it today, you know, if somebody wants my work, they should have it. It's more important than selling it, you know. And I mean, once in a while you get taken advantage of where someone will try to rip you off, but most of the time people really come to you and say, God, I, just, I love your work. I wish I could have it. I can't afford it. And that's like a, a red flag for me when someone says, I can't afford your work. And say, so, well, then I'll give it to you or I'll trade you something because your work is supposed to... Your work is supposed to have a, have a life to it. Anyway, mm -hmm. it's a long way around the barn on that one. That's huh? all right. <laughs> I think getting a lot of laughs. You guys are the best audience I've had. I mean, boy, I went somewhere. I was so paranoid about coming here. I bombed so bad in New Orleans. I mean, it was like, God, man, my wife was there. She said, you stunk, man. I mean, it's a classic. I mean, they've written books about the day I blew it in. New Orleans. <laughs> so, jumping forward, and if, if, if I'm skipping something too big, let us know, but um, the temples, right? So, yeah. So the first one was in 2000, right? Yeah, but let me give you something yeah. to give you a... Yes. I, that's what I'm wondering. How did you get to that? Yeah. yeah. Um, I, had, I had been doing art and showing... And I had a, a couple of galleries that represented me. And I had this chunk of work that I was working on. And this guy, collector, you know, a friend of mine, he'd been buying a lot of front, my friend's work. And I said, how come you never buy my stuff? And he said, it's dead. It doesn't have any life in it. You know. You know. And, you know, I, of course, ignored that. And, of course, the loading the kiln, I destroyed all the work in the kiln. Um, and I had to have a show. And a friend of mine, Bob Freed, who was a, a poster artist, Freed had had an aneurysm and died. And he was a real close friend. And I had never had death like that. And I had to do a damn show. And I had lost all the work in the kiln, right? So I had some horses. So I started putting started working on the horses and I was putting my loss or my pain or my sadness or whatever it was, sadness, into these pieces. And so the, the horses became the vehicle that carried what I was, my loss, right? And from that, I, I started, my work changed. I went from, you know, just making stuff that just would decorative bullshit to putting something that had some meaning to me. And so the San Francisco Museum gave me a, a show. And so I, I had been working with the kids, and the kids in Marin City were still in my being or whatever the hell, psyche. So I thought I would do uh, some pigs. I was going to do pigs, and I was going to have Still a little hangover from that religious bullshit of Jesus casting the demons into the swine. But my pigs looked like, I mean, they looked like, oh, God, they were bad. I mean, they looked like Disney pigs. You know, it was crummy. And right at the same time I was doing that, I had gone to Arizona to do a workshop. And I never, I've never taught. I've, I've always, mostly always worked as an artist, but I've done visiting artist things or stuff like that. And so I was in Arizona and I came back. And my studio was in San Rafael. And G 
Jim and Josie had the delicatessen, and I, I went in there and, and uh, I sat down and you know had a cup of coffee and, and they came up to me and Jim said, Dave, you know where you been? We were worried about you because you, you know, I used to go in there all the time and then I disappeared. And I said, oh, I had to go to Arizona. I did a workshop or some bullshit. And, I went home that night, and I had a dream. And it's not like a profound dream, but I, Josie was an Italian mother, right? And she had, you know, uh, so in a dream, she was like Snow White. You know, and so the next day, I thought, well, why I dreamt, had the dream about her is that I took them for granted. So I went in, and I said, gee, you know, I'm sorry I didn't tell you guys I was away. You know, thanks for your concern. You know, I was doing a workshop. And then, meanwhile, I'm still having to figure out the goddamn pigs in the studio, you know, and, and it just was, the work wasn't, it just wasn't happening. It was lousy, right? And then I found out that both Jim and Josie had cancer. Well, this was like when people didn't talk about having cancer, you know, it was like, and, and so I was in a studio and I'd come back and then I'd go back to the studio and I'd, and I went in, I said, you know, I don't know what the hell's going on. I can't work. And you guys have this something going on that I don't understand. But I said, it seems strange to me that I'm, I don't understand it. And I said, and Jim was from Butchertown. For those of you who don't know, Butchertown is in San Francisco over on 3rd Avenue. It used to be where all the slaughterhouses were. And people from Butchertown, if you guys research it, you'll find, yeah, Dave off from Butchertown kind of Brooklyn, cross between Brooklyn, you know, Butchertown. And he said, Dave, come on, come on to the, we'll take you to the hospital. You can go to the hospital. So I went, I'd go to the hospital with Jim and Josie. And Josie was getting, uh, she had lost her hair. And she looked great. She looked like Louise Nevelson. You know, I don't know if you know who, Louise Nevelson used to wear scarves. And Josie, I said, God, Josie, you look beautiful. You look beautiful. And, Jim said, yeah, she's like one of them Synanon dolls, you know. <laughs> and I said, I said, no, you're beautiful. And she said, no one's ever told me I was beautiful. And Jim had prostate cancer, and we'd be driving in his Ford truck. And I don't know why in the hell a stock Ford pickup truck had a chrome glove box. Someone had, had the idea to chrome the glove box door. But it was a normal truck. Nothing else was done to it. And he says, yeah, you know, Dave, they put this glass tube in your pecker, and it really hurts. And I wanted to fucking climb in that glove box, you know? <laughs> I mean, I wanted to get away from that, you know? And, and I went into the studio, and, and I mean, I was raising hell then, you know? I was like, you know, I, mean, I just was, I was always, I, I'm not as crazy as I used to be, but I'm still pretty goddamn crazy. And, I was just going nuts with this, you know, trying to figure out what was I doing watching these people dying of cancer. And I'd be in the studio working, and then I'd get pissed off and set fire to this stuff, you know. So lacquer thinner. I used to like to burn stuff. And then someone comes into the studio and says, oh, yeah, you know, my brother, he lost his leg. He had bone cancer. He died. And then someone else would come in and say, yeah, my daughter just died of leukemia, you know, and, and I manifest all of that stuff. I thought for sure I was going to, I thought if I were an artist, 
I should be able to find a cure for cancer, right? You know, and I mean, yeah, great. Smoke a lot of cigarettes, drink a lot, pour lacquer thinner all over your body, you're sure as hell gonna find a cure for cancer that way. <laughs> but I thought, you know, if you're really making real art, it should be able to heal, you know? And it didn't, you know, I mean, it, you know, I mean, Jim went to the opening and said, yeah, God, Dave, that looks like it. You know, I did a piece that had a, a glass rod and a penis. And he said, yeah, it's just like it feels like that. And, and so from that point on, my work took on those kind of issues, you know. Like, at first I thought, you know, what the hell these people keep coming into the studio with? Another person coming in and telling me they got cancer. You know, and... It just became, made my work rich. You know, I, I, I found a, a place for my work to do that. And the evolution of, of making pieces, I worked on, on the decorated cars when the Exploratorium asked me to, what kind of crew I wanted, what kind of people I wanted to work with. I said, I want, I said, bring me people developmentally challenged or people in trouble. And they brought me a group of kids of uh, Down syndrome. I don't know if any of you, I love working with Down syndrome people. I don't know if any of you, I mean, they are just about the coolest people in the world. I mean, they just are, you know. And they, they were working with me and they had the Down syndrome and AIDS, you know. And they were living in a home and had, you know, and they brought, things to put on the car. They brought condoms, and they brought a cup, and a dish, and things from people that, and I realized that, and they said, well, what are you gonna do with this car? I said, well, this is what you're gonna go to heaven in. Oh, boy, we get to go to heaven in this car, you know? I mean, you work with a Down syndrome person, they jump up and down, and it is, oh, boy, you know? But working with 100 people, or 150 people, so you're going to have 10 or 15 of those people aren't going to be here next year, right? You know, maybe not quite 10, maybe six. But all of a sudden I realized that what I was working with was people that weren't going to be here long, you know. And it became real clear to me, and this is done in one of my philosophies, is, you know, craftsmanship, I hate it. You know, I mean, I've spent all my goddamn life developing techniques, and I mean, I've draw and I practice and I draw all the time and I'm trying to make my work perfect. But for somebody that's only going to be here another year and they want to try to be fucking Rembrandt? No. Scribble that shit out on a piece of paper and get it out. Forget the perfection, you know? It's that perfection is why people steal tennis shoes from people or women become bulimic, you know? Or men leave their wives for a prettier woman or a Ferrari, you know? Craftsmanship and perfection at the expense of humanity is, doesn't work for me. And so that's, that's the kind of person I am now. But when I went to Burning Man, I, someone took me to Burning Man, and I went there and didn't clean up after myself, left, you know, didn't help anybody clean the camp. You know, just had a good time and then took off. And that's oftentimes what happens when someone first goes to Burning Man. They don't take care of anything. They just think, oh boy, I'm gonna just party. 
And the next time I went, I kind of made some decorative bullshit. I use the term decorative bullshit, but I use that pretty regularly. Uh, but I didn't do anything that had any meaning to it, you know. And then I found some material at a toys. My studio was next to a place that made dinosaur parts. You know, those dinosaur puzzles that you used to see in the museum, right? They stick together. Well, when they cut all those out, the drop. Okay, here's another lesson for you. When you're going to a place like you're going to go to a scrapyard or to a steel mill or to a lumberyard, if you go and say, hi, do you have any extra art material that I can get? Uh-uh. We sell our art material for a lot of money. Do you have any drop? Well, yeah, the drop's over there. Okay? Drop is what you use. That's the material scrap, okay? You're listening to a TNS Conversation with artists David Best and Steve Heilig. It's important to use nomenclatures when you're doing things because we live in a society that discriminates against people, as you all know. It's important, that's really, I mean, if I, you know, that you have to share knowledge, you know? You have to share knowledge, and it's, it's really important that you don't let people intimidate you because you don't know the right goddamn word. So I found this material, and I thought, well, I'll make something and burn it in the desert, you know? It was cool-looking stuff. And I was working with a kid named Michael Heflin, who was like a um, Shakespearean actor, sword fighter, sword maker, hellraiser, wild kid that was just getting out of trouble and into the next direction. And he had a, a big Ducati motorcycle. And he took off one night. The last thing he said to me is, there's anything you need me to do? And I said, no. And he left that night and got killed on a motorcycle going about 170 miles an hour. And we're about a week and a half from going to Burning Man. And at the cemetery, the kid said, well, Michael would have wanted us to go to the desert. So when we went to the desert, I was going to make this thing, right? This thing. We had this weird wood. I was going to make a thing. So we were making this thing. And it became clear to these kids that they were making this a tribute to their friend. And maybe 50 people, I don't know, maybe 100, came and put names of people that they had lost in it. And we unceremoniously, I mean really unceremoniously, threw diesel in it and set fire to it. You know, and it, I forget even what night. It was no, it was no big deal. And Bernie Man asked me, we, I like, to, I like to say me, but I also think we need to always say we because it's the crew that works and builds it, to build a temple the next year. And I thought, well, what would I make a temple to? You know, I'm not a Catholic, certainly not a born-again Christian <laughs> or a Jew. You know, I have no faith that, like that. So I thought, well, at Burning Man, now I'm not meandering too far away. I was there one year, and there were three gay guys. One, two, three. One guy was laying down on the ground, and he had leather straps, rawhide straps on his arms and legs, and a pin going through his penis, and he was laying on the ground naked. And I was with a film crew from Germany, and they were talking, and you know, kind of classic Folsom Street gay-looking guys. 
And the guy looked down and said, are you all right? And apparently the guy said yes, because they continued the ceremony. And I thought how proud I was to be part of a community that wouldn't beat or brutalize or jeopardize those people for what they were doing. And that what they were doing was in broad daylight. A guy that beats his wife after going to a football game and drinks too much beer and his team loses, that's obscene. And I was so proud to be part of a community that was able to understand and embrace things that the rest of the world didn't. So I thought, okay, if you've had a son or a daughter or a mother who's taken their life, I wanted you to feel like the temple, the center of the temple, the most sacred place, would be for that person. And so I didn't put a sign on it saying this temple is about suicide. I didn't say the center is about you know, that. But that year, 500 people put names of people in the center who had taken their life, and 10,000 people put names in it. So the next year, I said to Larry Harvey, I said, Larry, I'm going to do a comedy club. Because <laughs> the temple was called the Temple of Tears, and people cried. And so the next year, I called it the Temple of Joy. And people still cried, but they brought jokes. Like, uh, uh, you know, if you've been in a hospital, if you've had someone that's in a hospital dying of cancer, you know, and there's a big cartoon up there, and his father's laying in the bed, and everybody's writing, Dear Dad, you know, and all this. And then there's they, someone who brought one of those things, and it said, the man was laying in bed and said, This food tastes like dog shit. You know? <laughs> and they brought stuff like that. They brought not just, you know, they brought their mother's favorite joke, you know. Uh, and one of my friends who, who helped, helped kill his mother. I don't know what other word to use. I helped end my mother's life with morphine. I didn't think I was doing it, but that's what I was doing. And he felt bad about it, and it took him a long time, and he was a great joke teller. And he spent, you know, a half hour, hour, just telling me his mom's favorite jokes, you know, to kind of get over that thing, you know, the, the, the guilt of giving somebody morphine on, the end, on their deathbed, you know. It's a hard one to figure that one out. Uh, the temples were, I was always, I was concerned, and Burning Man was concerned, they, they, and this is, they, someone, had, a couple different times I had heard, uh, you know, the suicide stuff is a little, you know, can we change it a little or something? You know, and it's just, it's just not the way I dance. You know, it's like the, the man, all hell breaks loose. When the man burns, it's the most incredible pagan ceremony I've ever seen in my life. I mean, I said to my daughter, I said, Molly, if we're pagans, we're good ones. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, it's, and the temple is a place where it takes, it has to take, and I hate to use the word, it has to take the shittiest, darkest thing that you can possibly throw at it, you know? Uh, your daughter commits suicide, you know, takes her life. Your father does, or you're, you're dying of cancer, or your mother dies of cancer, or your husband dies of cancer. That's stuff that's not fucking lightweight stuff, you know? And it's got to, it's, the temple has to take that. It's supposed to take it. It's got to be built strong, 
right? You know, like really solid. And it's got to be built so delicate that a woman that's been raped can feel comfortable to go in. And yet, once it's in there, can be strong enough to take the rape. And the premise, the way I make the temples is it's really simple. I mean, I, I don't even know if we're looking at pictures, which I'm kind of glad we're not. Um, the, the whole thing is you want to make something really beautiful. You know, it's got to be beautiful. You know, it's got to be so beautiful that you can trick people. You know, because if someone walks up and it's half beautiful, you don't get them. You want to trap them. You know, I want someone to go in, fuck, this thing is so beautiful. Whoa, wait a minute. What am I looking at? Why am I here? You know, so you use beauty. I, I use beauty as bait to bring someone in, right? And, you know, so. How does, so the, the concept each year when you did these, um, what do you start with? Just a concept in your mind? That then is translated into a design and then is translated into with your big cruiser now a hundred and I mean big uh -huh. group of people and it takes many months um, you're starting with that concept each year and then trying to translate it into that kind of structural beauty really. yeah um, well there was a fun one one of the temples I did we did uh, we had finished we're cleaning up from the temple, that I forget which one it was. And someone said, well, what do you want to do next? And I said, well, shit, let's, let's do something like this. And maybe do that and just throw it on the ground. And then I went home and drew something. And we only have one drawing. And we have one drawing. And it was a quarter mile long. And people would go, oh, shit, let's see. The drawing be up on anything. And they go back and build it. And then they come back. And they go back and build it. No plans, you know. Uh, but these now, I mean, my understanding from Then you got adult. Then we got yeah. adult. Yeah. Then, <laughs> then we got adult. I mean, yeah. it's a very elaborate yeah. design constructed but, but you know, and then yeah, but that moved all the way up there to the desert yeah, to be grew, built again. We, we grew up. Yeah. Damn it. Well, you had to in some ways, I guess. Well, to some degree, to yeah. some degree, I mean, what we always built with, uh, I never made anything that was unsafe. So anytime we had a question about it, we'd double it, you know? You've we, always stayed very actively involved through yeah, the whole we, process all the way through and looking the building. at it yourself. Uh, how many people, what's the, what's the temp, give us just an idea of what the temple crew, how is it structured? Do you have a bunch of leaders and, you know, how many people? Uh, leaders, binding? I heard that word. Is that well, what you Well, no, I just mean, is there? I heard that, no. What I'm do you want to call them, vice presidents? You know, what we, you, uh, crew, crew leaders? No, no. Yeah, no, we don't have Foreman. any. Foreman. No, we no? don't have any of those. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no. Uh, Who's in charge here is what I'm saying, yeah, you know. <laughs> no one. Uh, Nobody, okay. No, you know, um, one of the things that's, that's unique about building the temple, and I think that's, uh, we did a thing in Hayes Green, and uh, the- uh, In San Francisco. In San Francisco, yeah. and the, I'm trying to think of the construction company 
Gelati, I think it was Gelati. Gelati had done all the work. And we were, put, we were building the Hayes Green Temple, and, and one, of the constri- one of the Gelati guys looked over at his friend and said, I don't know, I think there's some kind of cult. They all work for free. So working with volunteers is like, it's so much more expensive than working, than working with a paid person because you have to care about a volunteer. You have, to, you have to teach, you have to share, you have to embrace, you have to listen to volunteers. You know, it's, it's not just give me 10 volunteers. You have to build those people. They're, they're, the, the crew that, that I've worked with, I work with like God, maybe 150 people sometime, and each one of them has to has to feel as important as anyone else. And there's no, the difficult, it's not difficult. There's no one who's more important than anyone else on the crew. And that's, it's, it's really hard to get that into people's heads, you know, because someone says, well, I designed it, or this is mine, or this is mine, or I'm doing that, or I'm in charge of this. Bullshit. No one's in charge of picking and putting the gas in the compressor generator. Nobody's in charge of the drawings. No one's in charge. You know, it's, it's, it, it's, it belongs to everyone, and everyone has to feel, in order to, to build the temple, everyone has to feel that they own it. Do most of them come to be involved having seen one of the previous burns and then find you or find I, through, through I, contact? I recruit out of... I heard the term insane asylum the other day on something. <laughs> My house is an insane asylum, and people come to it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, people, you know, I would say that... God. This year, I didn't do the temple. The crew that worked with me, or we worked together, they did it. And in that crew, there were probably... I know there were two fathers who'd lost their daughters. There had been maybe four people that had suicide. One person's brother was dying as she was building. Uh, trying to think of other stories. But at least probably, probably 60% of the people that work on the crew have come to it with some type of loss or with some kind of issue that they have to work out. And. Uh, and it's, you know, back to the thing of finding the cure for cancer, you know. I, didn't, I never thought, I never think of myself as a healer, you know. I'm not like that kind of mellow type of person. But working together with people, you can create a lot of healing, you know. And, and that's kind of how, how we select people. Uh, a, a person came to me, how we work, if you were to be at my house, when we're building a temple, I get up in the morning and I make a pot of tea for Maggie, and then I get in the bed, back in bed, and we call Bill Cotting. And Bill Cotting is like a computer guy. And so Bill gets all the emails from people saying, I want to do this, or I'm going to do that, or we got insurance, or this bullshit, or that. And so we get Bill calls, and what do you got, Bill? And he said, well, this is a good one. 
person said, I'm overweight. I can't be on my feet more than a half an hour. I have no skills at all, and I want to work on the crew. <laughs> well, tell her, no, Bill. No, you got to do it. It's your job. Maggie, you call her. No, you got to do it. Well, none of us had the balls to tell this person. I thought, okay, person will come and work with us. And, you know, I hug and kiss everybody, you know. And I, and I mean, I, I didn't deliberately not hug and kiss her, but I wanted this person to see what it was like to work in a situation. She actually came up to some people and said, gee, I don't know what it is. David never comes up and hugs me. You know? And anyway, we get to the desert, and we're, we're uh, in line for breakfast or lunch. I don't remember which. And this person comes up to me and says, I just want to thank you for letting me be on the crew. Said it's really important to me that I'm on the crew. Well, the truth of the matter is I didn't have the nerve to tell her she couldn't be on the crew. She said, well, it's really important to me that I'm on the crew. And I said, she said, I'll tell you sometimes. She said, and she was, she was obese, okay? And uh, she said, when I was a little girl, my father molested me, sexually molested me, and I put on weight to protect myself. And I tried to kill myself three times. And the more, you, more the picture you get, you started to see the economic, where she was from. And she said, uh, I had three friends that stole their parents' card, the Filipino, Filipino, Hispanic, and I think the other kid was Chinese. And, uh, or it might have been Vietnamese. They stole their parents' car and took her to get her stomach pumped. And all three of them died in a house in a fire. And she said, I'm building a temple for them. And, I can work 50 hours nonstop. You know, that half hour that she put into the temple is what made it sacred, right? So it's putting together a crew is, you know, it's, it's, you have to see it. I would have missed that one. If I had missed that, the temple wouldn't have, it wouldn't have flown. You know, I mean, it, would, it, would, it just wouldn't have had this, had what that half hour that that person put in it, you know. Uh, so when you ask, I damn near take everyone, you know. There's, I've, I've had to, I asked three people to be off the crew in the times that I've worked. One person had a reputation as a dangerous drunk. And I don't have any drinking or drugs on the on site because it's dangerous. And I have people that are in recovery, so I want someone that's in recovery to feel that they can work in a safe environment. Um, a guy, a girl asked if he had a light, and he said, yeah, I got a light right here in my pocket. You want it? And I called him the next day and said, you're off the crew. You have to, you have to know the rules, you know. And it's a subtle line, you know, it's a subtle line between joking with somebody about, hey, you look great today, and that other thing. And as a parent for the crew, I have to watch out for that. That's the only, that's the, that's a, that's the only place where I, you can't fuck with me on that. You, you, you violate that and you're off the crew. Alcohol and drugs, 
if someone's in recovery, that's fine, but I won't allow someone to drink. Or if, if someone smokes a joint, they're off for the day. They can't work. I won't let them work. You know? um, um, I, I'm just curious, so all these years, and for those you haven't seen or don't know the scale, I mean, some of the temples are, you know, they're the size of this room. I mean, they're massive. Um, when you burn, when these are burnt, you've spent so much time, there's so much energy and love and spirit put into it. What is your feeling when you're watching it burn? Is it a mixed? I mean, I mean, this is about catharsis and other things too. Do you regret it in any way after all that work? Is it 100% uh, good for you, but what are you, what are you feeling when you're watching this happen? Yes, you could, without being, I've I've had that question a couple times. Yeah, sure. And really, what I see, what happens when the temple burns, is I'm sitting with my wife, and all I think about is my wife. That's what I think about. So it centers you on the essence of what's yes, most that's what, that's, important to that's, you. That's all I ever do. Every time I've sat with the temple, when it's burnt, I've just thought of, sat with my wife and thought about my wife. That's you know. So Dave, Washer. it doesn't you know the, a, a turning point. You know, this year there was a, a person took their life in the in the in the man. Uh, you got a population of seven, 70,000, 78,000 people, you know. Uh, and one of the designers of the man base this year took it really hard that that happened, you know. And I, I, I empathize with him because I've always been concerned about that. But, you know, you can't, I've learned you can't control that, you know. I mean, I'm, I build a temple and with the premise that the people are taking have taken their life. It wasn't a crew member, too, right? It was, no, yeah, no. Yeah. But uh, one year, when the temple had burnt, and I was like, you know, standing next to the bus wanting to go home, uh, a guy came up to me and said, uh, he was an Eddie Bauer kind of guy, you know, had no tattoos, had, looked like he might have been a lawyer or a doctor, you know? Uh, <laughs> And he said, you know, my son committed suicide. I'll qualify that. You know, I'm having a struggle with saying the word committed suicide, taking life. You know, committed suicide in Ireland, people say you committed a crime. Mm-hmm. You know, taking your life is the one we should use. But I'm old school and can't remember things. But this man said, my son took his life and you set him free. Mm-hmm. Now, once in a while, I go back and forth with, like, what the hell am I doing? I'm making temples and doing this bullshit instead of doing my own art. But I'm in the basement. If you can imagine, and many of you are artists and are probably in basements of museums, too. You know, I'm in the basement of the San Francisco Museum. You know, I'm in the basement of the warehouse of the San Jose Museum. Uh, one collector got drunk and pissed off at his wife and smashed one of my pieces. One of my pieces sold at a, a flea market for... They wanted 50 cents, and I offered them 25. <laughs> well, and that, they wouldn't go down, so I didn't buy it. So, um, so what I'm saying is all those years I've made my work, and it's like I'm either popular or I'm not. You know, it's, and this man went home. If you, can imagine, if you can imagine someone going home and not making love with his wife for months because their son had 
killed himself and not talking to his daughter or she's drinking or he's drinking. Now, 17 years later, that girl was 16 at the time. She's now 17 and 16. What's that, 32? She's now 32 years old. The daughter is talking to her son about her brother who used to ride bicycles and make weird-ass things in festivals and ride his bike over just cliffs. Killed himself. And there's something missing. It's, he's not, she's talking about him freely. It's, the guilt is gone. And that's not going to go out of style. It's not going to go in the basement of a museum. It's not going to get thrown away. That, commit, that change that those people had is going to last for three generations, you know? Mm -hmm. And in terms of why I do the damn temple, each time I go, what the fuck am I doing? I can't do this anymore. And then I think about, you know, being able to, what, six months of your life and you're healing some family for three generations? Mm -hmm. Who'd pass that up? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you know, you know, yeah, sure, I'll build another goddamn temple if it's going to keep someone from taking their life or help them get healed for a loss, you know? Anyway, right. that's why we do that. When you and it's also for glory and fame? Yes, of course. <laughs> Goes without saying. Hopefully. A lot of so, money. Big money. In yeah. The, so, but Big the, money. The, Wait, that's the president talking now. Yeah, right. I yeah, knew you we'd had get to go to there. I so, knew we'd no, so, um, a couple years ago, you actually took one, and and Dave went to to Ireland. Mm -hmm. um, what was the intention of that one? Well, so yeah, let's see if I can fit that in. So I had done. Oh God, look. Six or seven. That's now. my Cadillac. <laughs> uh, we. An organization in London called Artichoke had developed a program. They were going to do an event in Northern Ireland called Luminaire. And they contacted me and said, brought me over to Derry, Northern Ireland, and said, we want you to build something. Well, it didn't happen, you know. And uh, they didn't get the funding or something. And I saw her, and she was crying. And I said, you know, that's one of my techniques, you know. <laughs> And she said, no, I really want this to happen. And a year later, they called me back. And we went. I brought a crew. But they did a lot of groundwork first. We're in, in Northern Ireland in Derry, London Derry or Derry, was where Bloody Sunday had occurred. OK, that was a U2 song. Or it's, where the, it's where the British soldiers shot a bunch of innocent protesters. Uh, so we did a lot of groundwork. I went over and met with community centers and with the, the uh, Bloody Sunday people. That's that's those are the that's the temple. There you are. So we went. Derry has uh, one suicide a day, oh. right? Off that bridge. And uh, so we went. We brought brought a crew over. And then we got, in order to make it work, we used uh, four paid volunteer, four, four paid builders. They had to have been out of work for six months. Mm -hmm. 
kind of for the grant for the government thing there. So, so we built a crew. Then I had 30 volunteers from the community. I went out and met with people. So we brought in, we had Protestant and Catholic kids working together. And they, you know, it's like they'd never, they'd actually never worked together, you know, of, I don't know, the Catholics are so weird, or the Protestants, they, they did all that bullshit. And I said, no, you gotta work together, you can't. And they wouldn't, we wouldn't let them not. And the Catholic priest and, this sounds like a joke, but a Catholic priest and a Protestant <laughs> minister, it was a joke, they came to talk to me and they said, uh, and they were active in the, in the dairy community, they said, you know, no one's gonna come to here, you know, you're, I'm working in a contest, contested land, which is where the Irish, where, the, where they're gonna fight over it. And uh, I said, he said, well, you know, why don't you do this nice park? We got a nice park. And I, this is where I kind of, I, I like working with religious people, because I know how to turn them off real quick. <laughs> I said, you know, I said, you don't put a fucking holy man in a park. The Catholic priest, that was it. He hated me after that. And I'm like, come on, everybody swears in Ireland, but. <laughs> so when we did it, there's a picture here that Dave Washer's pretty fond of. He'll show it eventually. But it was snowing in Ireland. I mean, it was crazy cold. I mean, it was, it was insane. It was really cold. Uh, we had both Protestant and Catholic working. When we opened the temple, the son of the person that was shot in the back of the head in Bloody Sunday lit the temple next to a British soldier whose family had been blown up. And again, this is the crew in the bar. And Gabe's in there, Gabe? Huh? That's the guy I was telling you about with the girlfriend. And how many people came for the uh, Well, the pot. The population of Derry, I think, was what, 80,000, 90,000, 78,000 people came. So, and they came, they didn't know who in the hell I was. They didn't know who Burning Man was. They didn't have any glow sticks. They came, <laughs> they came to forgive. And uh, it was amazing to see. Uh, we had a kid whose brother had committed suicide, killed himself. And uh, he came up and he said, you made this for my brother. Mm -hmm. you know? And one of the things I always tell the crew when we build a temple, we just build it for one person. Mm -hmm. We never build it for 70,000 people. Mm -hmm. and, and we always find that one person. You know? um, this, was, this was a game changer for myself and the temple crew. You know, uh, How so? Well, what was different? Hmm? What was different? I mean, what made it a game changer? Uh, we. This was I don't know. I mean, what was the difference? That's Dave Washer because he's going to talk. Here's the numbers. You got to get that in focus, Mr. Washer. There it is. Numbers. Saturday nine hundred. Sunday twenty three. And I mean, they were coming like pilgrims. I mean, it was insane. It was like. See, I mean, they were coming up, and and like 
a little kid was, was holding his grandmother's hand and he said, it's okay, Grandma. And she was writing on the thing. He told her it was okay to do it. Um, the, the, the healing was, you know, it's hard, to, it's hard to know how much healing lasts, you know, how, mu how much of it is real, you know. You're listening to a TNS conversation with artist David Best and Steve Heilig. But you, I mean, I, I, let me let me suggest or guess that I mean you did this in a contested area, in an area of history of great conflict and suffering. I mean, I I'd been there many years ago, and the tension and the uh, the continual threat of I mean the poverty and violence between the North and the South. I mean, I, I always remember this, and so when you went there and did this, and I saw all of. Dave's photos and videos, I just felt it. It was extraordinary. I won't say it's more different or better than the Burning Man because that's a different situation, right. but you did it in a place that needed this, like. Yeah, it was, it was, this was, when I look at these, I mean, like, it's real easy to build a temple, you know? I mean, it's, it's really not that hard. I mean, you, the, the issues you have to continue, you have to deal with are, Accommodating 70,000 people, making it look like it's for one person so that that one person can go in and use it. It has to be pretty. It has to be structurally sound so that someone doesn't get killed when it falls over. Uh, and you got to make it within a budget, you know, so you have to have, those are the issues. You know, if you can find material like the last temple I did in the desert, I found scrap material. Uh, almost, I think we did like 85% all scrap, which again, there shouldn't be scrap anywhere. You know, nothing should be scrap. We need to start rethinking our our resources. But uh, so this is really pretty. You know, we one of the things that happened from this, we went to uh, Nepal, which was uh, was. was was great because I, you know, you always think you're such a smart guy, you know, and then you go to, so we, we got all this design for this goddamn temple and we were going to build in Nepal, you know, it has seismic drawings because they had earthquakes, we had a great earthquake in, in Nepal, so, so we get all these seismic drawings and all this stuff and, and we get there and, and they look at us and go, yeah, sure, okay, you're going to build it? With what? Where are you going to get a drill? You know, where are you going to get the wood? You know, there's no wood. They, they, there's no wood in Nepal. They've they depleted their their resources, and so what we did is we waited for material to come, and it never came. So we ended up buying this. Uh, they they took all the rubble from their houses and used it for firewood. So we gave them the firewood price. And we started buying. We started buying the scrap wood, and making it out of the door frames and stuff. And then they started bringing the wood. And uh, at first they were really standoffish, you know. But one of the things that that you know, like you know, I mean, I, I one a couple of my friends are here from Burning Man, so they might feel a little uncomfortable about me saying this. But I'm not a burner. You know, I don't think of myself as a burner, but the principles 
of Burning Man are pretty right on, you know? And when we were in Nepal, every day when we finished working, we'd sweep up, right? And this was an earthquake pile of rubble, and we would clean up and pick up everything with the same joy that we had when we started work in the morning. You know, we, we liked cleaning up as much as we liked making the mess. And it became contagious. I mean, they started watching us and seeing, wow, these guys are picking, you know. We'd go inside the little holes where they throw their, their offerings into the thing, there'd be chipped things and Pringle. Someone was telling me Pringles. Were you talking about Pringles? Someone was, well, a friend of mine was talking about Pringles in the temples. They have a Pringle can for the incense, you know. That they, their interpretation of what's sacred and what's not, they, you know, it's, they, they have a different set of rules than we do. Uh, but what we saw is with that temple, which was really, a, a, wasn't a very successful piece in terms of its art, but in terms of the impact on the community, it was incredible, you know, because, you know, they, they didn't, they didn't, what we have as a gift is the ability to enjoy working, you know? Volunteers enjoy working. I mean, this is one of the things that challenges me about having a room full of people is if I could get you guys and we could build something together, we could knock the hell out of something, you know? I mean, you know, when you're asking me where I get my volunteers, I got a whole room full of them, <laughs> you know? I mean, I mean, we could make something, I mean, I think, what I want to do with the rest of my life is do this. I want to get and make stuff with people, you know? I mean, we're all fortunate. Everybody in here, probably everybody in here has at least $5. At least five bucks. I think I've got five or $10 on me, but, you know? I mean, we've got, we've, we're, we've got full bellies and we've got skills. So we've got so much goddamn talent in this room. We could build a lot of stuff. You know, and it's just the idea of switching it over from commerce to, you know, a different idea of us working together. So when you ask me how do I find volunteers, shit, it's easy. They're right here. <laughs> They're right here. You know, there's one right there. <laughs> there's one right over there. Bach, huh? Come on, Bach. You want to go to Bach's going to? He's got. So let's let's talk. We want to hear a little bit from one right here, the, yeah. the gentleman who's oh, done most of these. Oh, before we so, go, the last yeah. thing I want to say about this thing oh, yeah. is just, and then I will get off the stage, I promise. No, no, you're staying here. Uh, I was asked to do a piece in uh, Point Reyes, and they, uh, so I said, well, you know, what's the hook? You know, what am I going to, you know, what's going to make me want to do it? And I said, well, you know, there was a little girl that drowned in the estuary. And I said, okay, there's my hook. So I had one, two, three, four fathers who had lost their daughters work on that piece. I mean, ow, you know? I mean, that's sacred stuff. I mean, that's what's, that's what, I mean, that was not, that's not, again, that's not bullshit, you know? So we have one of them here, actually. I'm done. You, no, no, you stay here. Hey, David. <laughs> I'm done. Go sit both, of, both of you. <laughs> you go ahead. Come here. 
and we got to be we got to be quick here. But okay. so, um, Dave Washer, as I meant, as mentioned, been on the crew a long time, done a lot of the photography you've seen here. Let's, let's give him a thanks. <laughs> um, just what you know, what you're comfortable saying, but what he's been talking about. I know this all rings very true to you. You've been a part of it, but what brought you to first join the crew? And I, I, I hate saying be the, brief on this because it's a huge <laughs> I'm story. Not, I'm, well, I'll say this first. It is my amazing pleasure to be up here. Stephen, Steve Heilig and I went to high school together. I, I consider him my brother and my best friend. David Best is one of the more, most important people in my life. When I lost my daughter, Phoebe, when she was 20 years old, we had the ceremony on top of David's beautiful property. Steve Hiley was the man who stood in front of everybody and introduced me via ceremony. And David afterwards said, this orchard is yours for this year. And we had other ceremonies. And then, he gave it, then he gave it to me and said, this is yours for eternity. And that was my introduction to David Best and his lovely wife Maggie and his beautiful children, Molly, and his amazing mother-in-law, Joan. And the connection there was that he knew Phoebe, right? Phoebe is an artist, and she was part of the Petaluma community. And so, yeah, I'm one of those people who, when you have loss and grief of that magnitude, you are on a journey. And the journey takes you to places that you would never have gone without it. And one of the most healing parts of that process is to be able to hold the sorrow and the grief in one hand and the amazing gratitude and appreciation, love and wonder in the other. And when you're working on these temples and you're working with a man with the inspiration of David Best and you're having amazing friends like Steve Heilig, you're constantly holding that simultaneously the whole time that you're working or sharing or eating or laughing and crying. The wonder and beauty and gratitude of building something of that beautiful and also the holding the spirit of the person who you love so much in every moment. And loss and grief in this place is not something you hide and put it behind your back or kind of you know go into a corner and smoke cigarettes and drink wine, but you're building something that you're actually offering that as a healing other people and you realize that as you reach out to heal others it comes back and heals you and it is a, it is a beautiful powerful poignant sensation and as we work on these temples that becomes part of it then I've done now like for four at Burning Man and we did Ireland and we've done these other things and as you get to you the loss and grief and the journey part is not quite as poignant. It becomes more of like, okay, I'm a strong man. I'm building. I'm doing things. I, it's a part of my process. It's part of who I am. And then you step back and you look at like, you know, how do we do this? What is the optimism that we bring? And I, I just want to point out to that, that picture in Ireland that we stopped out there. And I had a picture and there was a, a, a young mom and their daughter and there's a grandmother in the background. And there was, there's no Burning Man, there's no 
like technology that everybody already knows that it, it was not broadcasted how to do it. But 70,000 people, led by grandmothers holding children's hands, arrived on that hill with nobody telling them how to do it. All with that same spirit that I'm talking about where you're holding sorrow and grief and gratitude and wonder or appreciation, whatever words you want to use. Those are just my little nugget words, but just, just hold them as sensations. And in that moment, it's, it's like you realize that we have just in a really a few really pieces of optimism that we can hold off in, into our life, in our world, in our community, in our globe. And this is one of them. Because it is not about politics. It's not about some kind of hypothetical morality. It's not about religion. It's not about culture. It's about something all humanity shares, which is loss and grief and how we hold it for our families and our children and how we want to raise them and bring them into this world, something special. And so these, these temples are beautiful. I, and this, every word I'm saying here is something I've learned in the process of building these temples, in the process of working with my friend David Best, in the process of holding beautiful times walking on this cliffside with my friend Steve. Have a chips and cottage cheese. <laughs> Bare feet. So anyway, that's the Thank answer to my you. question. See, I wanted to I wanted to bring him up here to do this in a sense what David Best was talking about. I mean, we basically have a case study, as it were, as we'd say, of of of, of, of how it how how it can work, you know, in a sense. So so thank you, David. Will you guys switch again and come back up? Thank you. <laughs> nice going. <clears throat> it's, it's, I mean, you know, and just hearing him say this, I gotta say, I mean, Phoebe, you know, was born in my house, basically, and was my goddaughter, too, so I'm still, it's still. Right. Um, and when, when I met David Best through him offering his place for that ceremony, which was by far the most difficult kind of talk I've ever been asked to do and just the graciousness of them offering this place that was so perfect for it was, I just never forgot it. So um, tell it, me. It, oh. Yeah, go ahead, do it. No, I was just going to ask you, you know, I'm always, I'm, my, my, the I'm hardest like, part of my job here is the clock, you know. You're doing so, a great job. Thanks. <laughs> um, you've got some interesting stuff coming up now too. I mean, so you've stopped the, mm -hmm. uh, the at least for now, the Burning Man temples, but you've got some new projects coming up. Would you tell us about mm -hmm. um, Let's see if this answers that question. Uh, God, it is so difficult to be me. You know, I mean, to, to be in that position of, of this respect bullshit that comes down on me, you know? <laughs> It's like, you know, it's like it's very hard to figure out, you know. Uh, and I wanted to, I think I don't want you guys to raise your hand on this one, all right? But there's a number of you here who have lost someone through suicide, okay? I know that. And... Uh, and if you want to talk to me later, great. If you don't want to talk to me later, I don't blame you. you know? But I understand that that 
kind of thing. I don't have a goddamn answer to this stuff, you know? I mean, it's like someone's here and life is hard for them and they have to leave mm. and they can't make it, you know? Uh, it's just, we're right on the edge. Some of us, you know, I mean, I'm a crazy man, you know? And I mean, I've come close to running cars in the trees and I've done a lot of dangerous stuff. And, you know, I just didn't go that far. And some of you have gotten right that close and didn't go that far. And your brother got that far and went. Mm. And he couldn't come back. And it's like, it's just like almost a mistake, you know? But you have to, uh, easy for me to say this to you guys, I'm not a goddamn grief counselor or a psychologist. You have to not blame yourself. When someone makes a decision, it's their decision, you know? And it's like, you just, you have to say, it's okay, you know? I mean, it's, it's you just, I don't know how to, I don't know how to offer you that, that. And if I could, if I could make it perfect, God damn it, I'd do it. I swear to God I would, you know, but I can't. I don't know how to do it, you know. But I want you to know that, you know, I know you're out there. I know that you've had that shit, you know, okay? So forget all the other bullshit. I know that someone's had something happen to them here. Uh, what am I doing next? Uh, I just wanted to make sure that that got out. I want you guys to know that's that well, not it, just... You're, you're saying something very important because, it, I mean, and I've spent a lot of time on this stuff too, and one of the universal human reactions almost always is to find some way to blame yourself, yeah. even if it's nonsense. So that's a yeah. very important point you're making. It's one of the first things that we tell people in these, in yeah. these situations. Yeah. I did the thing, and I found out where it came from, which was really embarrassing, but I will get to what I'm doing, but that's not so much as, as important as this other stuff. The temple, when, I, when we burn it, there's a big ring around it, right? And it's like, I don't know, 12 people in the ring, you know, thousands of people. And, and I walk around and I say, it's not your fault. And I walk along and I go, it's not your fault. And fuck you, man. What do you mean it's not my fault? Light the thing. You know, it's not your fault. Well, whose fault is it? Yours? You know, and, and I'm walking around and I say, it's not your fault. And then, I mean, I, you can see that I'm already starting to feel pretty stupid right now. Imagine doing that in front of thousands of people. And this woman runs up to me and says, what do you mean it's not my fault? And I looked at her and I said, if your son took his life, it was his decision and you can't blame yourself. She said, my son killed himself last week. I found the ticket and I wanted to find out what he was looking for. And she walked around the circle with me while I told other people it wasn't their fault. I swear to God that's the truth. How did I know that that woman's son had taken his life because we're animals, you know? We used to be better animals than we are now. We used to smell one another, you know? And then we started wearing perfume and putting on white shirts so you wouldn't see that I have little gray hairs on my chest, you know? We put all these barriers so that we won't see each other. And you know, when you go to the desert, you're tired, your girlfriend's left you, your ice chest smells like dead fish. You've lost your keys. 
you know, you're worn out. And you've got less bullshit, you know, to hide from. You know, there's less, there's, there's a whiteout. I don't care if you're the richest person on the playa. When a fucking whiteout comes, you're just as beat as anybody else. And it's that neutral, that, that clearing that makes you able to see one another, you know. And if, I'm not going to, I'm not a, I feel like I'm one of those guys like that guy with Tom Cruise. I'm Tom Cruise on one of those television shows, you know. <laughs> Fuck! I'm not. But if we could look at one another a little more closely, we'd see, we, we'd, we'd see what those other people are feeling, you know. And it's not like magic, you know, it's not like I'm not some fucking shaman that can go up and find where water is in the ground or figure that out. But you can look at people and it, people wear it. And in Ireland, I was with this guy that's a search and rescue guy and he talks, we were at a thing talking about to people that had survived suicide. And I looked at him after, is this just a regular normal kind of guy? And I think I'm basically, of course I think I'm normal. <laughs> but... Uh, we were sitting there, I said, you know, doesn't it freak you out that every time you're on an airplane, you can sit next to someone and in the next few minutes they tell you about their, their grandmother committing suicide and their uncle shooting himself? He says, yeah, what is that? I said, fuck, I don't know, but it happens to me all the time too. You know? uh, it's what I do. I love it. I love, I love it. I love it. I absolutely can't imagine anything more sacred and more generous than someone giving me their loss, you know? It's like, what, what a privilege for someone to share the deepest, most painful thing in their life. Wow, you know, I'm honored to hear anything, you know? And it's like, all people want to do is be heard. They just want, they just want someone to listen, you know? So that's enough of that Tom Cruise bullshit. No, that's all right. And actually, you know, I mean, that, you were right there. I was about to say, let's end it right there because you can't top that. I'll just say one of the things I think you've got coming is a TED Talk, right? Oh. Those are like 15 minutes, oh. right? <laughs> this was going to be this was going to be kind of like a practice for that. <laughs> but I, I think this is going to be a challenge. <laughs> Oh, oh boy! <laughs> Thanks a lot for that one. Yeah. <laughs> I so had, we hope this I helps. Have, I have two, I have, <laughs> you know, the only thing that that made me—I I really was. There's two of them. I was supposed to do two of them, and I really got freaked out by it. You know, I mean, really, really weird. I didn't feel good at all about it. And uh, this year at Burning Man, this woman, a young man, took his life earlier. And the temple crew, one of the people on the crew, Steve, who was, there, was, there were three people that built the, designed to build the temple together, Mark Sinclair, Marisha, and Steve. And Steve said, well, how do you decide who's going to light the temple? And I said, the community, will, you'll, you'll find it. Mm -hmm. And this woman, imagine, two weeks later, the widow of the man that took his life is lighting the temple. I went, okay, I can fucking talk to TED Talks. <laughs> I, that's, that's no problem, no problem, you know. If, if the temple hadn't taken that, if it, it, if, it, if it had just been a handful of elite people lighting the temple, then I wouldn't have had anything to say. But the fact that this woman went up two weeks after her husband killed himself 
and lit the temple. I went, yeah, I'll talk. The TED Talk's no big deal. You know, that's all I have to say about that one. Um, I've got a bunch of projects. I'm building a competition coop. <laughs> you guys, <laughs> I got a captive audience. Hot rod stuff now. I, I've, I have a, a, my passion is uh, automobiles. No, I'm, I, uh, I've fallen in love with land speed racing. And I just, you know, I'm a terrible mechanic. You know, I'm a really, 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 really bad driver. <laughs> and I'm building a race car. So, uh, uh, and I love it. I just, it's, 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 it's such a challenge to do something you don't know how to do, you know? And it's like, I mean, it's like, it really feels good. Uh, the Smithsonian, we're going to do a temple at the Smithsonian, inside the Smithsonian next year, 2017, 18. 18. 2018 in January, February, March. And it's going to be a challenge because, for one, it's across the street from the White House, <laughs> which, you know, is a pretty dark place. It should be the Black House. <laughs> And um, the idea of making a souvenir or a replica of a temple is not my way of doing it, you know. And I've told them that. I've said, you know, look, you know, this is, you want me to build a temple inside the Smithsonian, it's going to have, you know. So what I figured out is I'm going to get a half a million pieces of wood cut, which uh, is pretty simple to do. There's so many neat things out there. Back to that thing about the technology and about questions and about, I love it. You're great. You're saving my ass. When you go to want to know about tools and stuff, you, can, you start researching this stuff. I went to a guy, and I said, I need half a million pieces of wood cut. That seems like a lot of pieces of wood, huh? Yeah, no big deal. When do you need them? Oh, not for a couple months. Oh, hell yeah, easy. Half a million pieces of wood is going to cut them like that. He's got a machine that goes cut, 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 and cuts a half a million pieces of wood. So there's going to be blocks of wood for people to write on. And then, you know, of course, there'll be offerings again, just like always, I hope. So doing that, Paris, France is January, February, March, March, April, May, June, July of next year. We're going to build a temple, a permanent temple in Paris, France, for the uh, refugees, addressing the re refugee and the racism and the discrimination that's going on in Paris, France. And working with a French filmmaker, Jan Artus Breton, who did a film called Humans. And he's like uh, really. The issues that are important to him are, are the refugee crisis. So I'm doing that. I'm going to, um, I hope you guys have some stuff that you're excited about, OK? Because I hate like hell just being here bragging about bullshit. <laughs> That's mean, fine. Uh, we're, I'm we're... going, in November, I'm going to, I think, I'm going to Uganda. Mm. And that's I've, one of the dreams I've had is to at Burning Man, we build a city, and we enjoy building it. 
We enjoy living in it. You know, it has a government. It has all the things that a refugee camp has or needs. And I thought, God, with the amount of talent that the Burning Man community has, we could build a refugee camp. You know, and if we don't build it, the bad guys come and build it. So I'm going to go to Uganda and, and research an old existing refugee camp and then see a new one that's being built. And do the same thing. You know, build, it, build a community center that's based kind of around a temple bullshit, but a, a place, a recreation hall, or a place where young people could talk or figure out government, you know. So anyway, that's that. And then 2019, I'm going to Bonneville with my race car <laughs> and to hopefully Belfast. It was nice knowing you. Belfast, yeah. Northern <laughs> Ireland. Yeah. Oh, back to Northern Ireland, yeah. Uh, you know, I had, uh, I don't want to get killed somewhere, but you know, I was in, in Balt Pittsburgh. No, Baltimore. No, Pittsburgh. It was Celebrate Black History Month in Martin Luther King's birthday or something. I don't know what was going on, but they had put me up in an apartment. I went down, it was Sunday, and I went outside, and everybody was, there was a big festival. And uh, they were all, there was, you know, different booths and stuff, and there was a barbecue place. And so I'm waiting in line for ribs, right? And I'm standing, there's a woman in front of me, and then all of a sudden, the, the guys in the, in the rib place all, get all jumped down, and everybody starts running, and this guy is shooting at a guy. And I'm standing there, and this woman, and this guy, guy's shooting, and the, the guy's running past me. And the woman looks down and says, I want my motherfucking ribs. <laughs> and I said, I want to order ribs, too. <laughs> so, uh, With so, that. That's it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Dave. And Dave Washer, too. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with artists David Best and Steve Heilig. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.